Hello, welcome to ATC Office Hours with special guest and accomplished golfer, uh, champion golfer, Carl Scamenti. Welcome, Carl, to ATC Office Hours. Thank you, Micah. Yeah, yeah. Generous to call me an accomplished golfer. I think I'm, I'm just a golfer who spends a lot of time at a golf course and uh, by osmosis maybe uh, finds a trophy or two hidden, <laughs> hidden somewhere. But uh, yeah, cool to be joining you today. I can't wait to, to chat about the playability. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to talk about this. And we have been going back and forth uh, for a while, but we, we wanted to do this back in February. And it was actually, I wanted to schedule something during the week of the golf industry show. And you uh, reminded me that that might not be a good time. And I thought, you know, that actually is not polite to schedule something right during the golf industry show. I said, let's postpone it. Um, and so that would have been in February sometime. And then I went on a round the world trip and then some, and then you've been doing those awesome uh, Cornell turf talks, the fastest 30 minutes in turf, which I binge watched. And so, um, you know, you had all that going on and now that kind of came to a close. I've been at home for a little while. And, and then I thought, let's bring back that conversation and talk about playability because in the Northern hemisphere, even though there's been two major championships by uh, this time, which is a bit of a shock, uh, it does seem like it's still the start of the golfing season. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for us, so for those who don't know, I'm, I'm based in New York up here in uh, Ithaca and we had a really uh, rough winter damage uh, season this winter. And it really took a lot of golf courses, uh, really until mid-May to, to start recovering in earnest. Um, so just locally, it feels like like the golf season is just now starting. A lot of these courses are recovering fully and, and getting 100%, just barely 100% turf cover now. Um, so you're right. It's, it's really weird to have two major championships before uh, the, the month of June for us because it's just starting to, we're just starting to get our clubs out, out of the garages and, and warmed up. But uh yeah, it's, it's a perfect time now to talk playability because we're, we're starting to get into the uh, kind of that 90 days Memorial Day to Labor Day, uh, at least for, for us here up here in the, the northern U.S. Now, this uh, this is a live stream and it's also going to be recorded for later viewing. If you are watching the live stream and want to chat with us or leave some questions or comments, you can go ahead and do that and we'll respond to those as as we have a chance. Now, Carl, your Twitter profile says you uh, used to be a professional golfer. Now you've got a real job. Uh, so anybody that used to be a professional golfer uh, has quite a bit of skill at golf. Um, and now what is your real job? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I'm so interested to hear and to learn from, from you about what what a good playing surface is what a bad playing surface is and and how we might manage those a little bit more efficiently yeah so so you know as my twitter <clears throat> profile says I, I play professional golf for basically just two years uh and, and there's lots of levels of professional golf right and and sometimes when you say professional golf uh people think tiger woods the people on tv there are many levels below those rungs on the pga tour there's the corn ferry tour there's the uh, subsidiaries like the PGA Tour Canada, and then there's mini tours. And that's where I was on, on you know, the quote unquote mini tours. Uh, and, and so spent a little bit of time 
kind of just just around those and and when you spend some time around some real high level golf golfers just on that lower level you, you realize that golf and talent between someone like me and and even someone who can't even make the pga tour canada so uh yeah figured out pretty quickly okay yeah you know professional golf probably not gonna do it for me um and so, so i had worked for frank rossi up here at cornell in as an undergrad actually just mowing the research plots doing daily maintenance and that was a way for me to to work early in the mornings uh, during my summers in college and then get out the golf course in the afternoon uh, but when i moved back to ithaca after playing professional golf frank wanted to leverage he reached out he wanted to leverage my environmental engineering degree so i had a lot of experience kind of looking at data and models and equations and he said hey i, I think we can leverage that for uh, the turf grass industry how, how about you come on and uh, I worked with the state park golf courses, our New York state park golf courses. Uh, we've had this project continuing with them really since the early 2000s when, when Frank and Jennifer Grant started this project. But basically looking at their pesticide use, uh, their fertilizer use, and, and trying to find ways how we can reduce inputs uh, while maintaining the quality of those golf courses across the state. Um, so I moved into a position really working closely with a lot of the state park superintendents uh, and trying to measure that. So how do we measure pesticide use? Uh, pesticide risk is different from pesticide use. There's models to do that. Uh, and then surveying the golf courses and saying, okay, if we use less, are we still seeing conditions that are acceptable for golfers? Uh, and that's really where the data started to come in. We built these models. Uh, I have a huge Excel spreadsheet that can rate the infrastructure zero to 100 on a golf course. That's everything from the maintenance facility to the drainage to the irrigation. Uh, I can rate an equipment fleet from zero to 100. You know, how many mowers do you have, uh, utility vehicles, everything down to the cup cutters. Uh, and then we can rate your golf course zero to 100. How nice are the greens? How nice are the fairways? Um, and we can try and figure out, okay, if you want to get to, for example, an 80 at your golf course, uh, is the infrastructure appropriate to get there? Is your labor force appropriate to get there? Um, and using that data has been really cool uh, with state park uh, decision makers, right? So there's superintendents of the golf courses, and then there's a lot of people above them. Um, and, and being able to have that sort of data to say, look, you know, the irrigation system is failing, the, the soils are very poor, your drainage is poor. Uh, it would take an enormous amount of inputs to get to the quality you'd like to get to, unless you restore that infrastructure. So uh, I, I've used the data part of my my training in college to um, work with with turf grass managers to assess where they currently are. Okay, what's going on now, and identify where do you need to improve, whether it's infrastructure, labor, changes in management practices, which we'll talk about today, to get to your goal. And I think that's going to be the conversation today: is is what is a goal? How do you establish a, a goal for for golf course playability? Yeah, I, yeah, it's. Exactly. It's a big subject with uh, difficult to come up with a very clear answer because there's different opinions about what good playability is. There are different ways to achieve that. Even if we did agree about what good playability is, there's, there's a lot of different ways to achieve it. And then when it comes to assessing it, there's a lot of different ways that you can measure these type of things. And that, um, becomes a very broad uh, subject that which is why I think this is going to be a bit of a meandering conversation and I think we've had one or two other calls privately 
And the whole I my whole idea with this office hours podcast is to have conversations that I would have anyway. That they're the type of conversations of either somebody wants to talk with me or I want to talk with them. So we have these office hours to discuss them. But when I think the subject would be of general interest, I said, let's record it and let's make it a live stream because I expect that there may be some people out there in the world who would be interested in hearing what we talked about. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, Mike, I have shoot. a question and, and maybe it's a good starting point. Um, you know, I, I talked about what is the goal for your golf course and we can, t- and I don't know if you want to focus on putting greens maybe, and maybe that'll kind of narrow the conversation in today, but what, what percentage of the golf courses would you say that you work with have a defined goal for their, for their putting surfaces, for example? Um, 10%, uh, something like that. It's, it's rare. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting because there's so many ways and maybe this is a good segue. Like what is the most important thing about a putting green? Is it the speed? Is it the smoothness? Is it the firmness? There's all of those things matter. It's really hard to develop a, a defined goal for your putting greens and it depends on your your clientele of course but okay what is my goal for speed and that's different on a monday through friday than maybe a saturday and sunday um would you start at speed micah if you were going to say okay what's the most important thing would you say it's it's green speed uh the most important thing for me is 100 percent grass cover which is not okay. related to playability but generally when i assess a putting green I think it's really difficult to get consistent speed. Uh, and now I'm talking about a property. We're talking about uh, the nine holes or, or 11 holes or how, or 13 holes or 18 holes, however, uh, however big the golf course is, I'm looking for a hundred percent grass cover on those surfaces because I think it's really hard to get the firmness, smoothness and speed that we want if we don't have a hundred percent grass cover. So that's kind of beside the point. Um, of what we're talking about. But first I look at that and then yes, I would look at speed. And, and that was what I looked at exclusively. I'm always a bit late to the party. Uh, People might think of me as being really into data and numbers and stuff, but I'm actually into um, doing the important work and not doing work that I don't think is important. So because of that, it's uh, a lot of this like benchmarking stuff. It's, it's really hard for me to think um, like, let's just collect data just to have it, which is why I've had this discussion about tissue testing with Doug Soldat. He says you might be able to make use of it sometime. And I just, I'm very resistant to that because I think it takes time and money to do it. It might be misleading if we're not making good decisions with our tissue data. So just to archive it, I don't think that's the job of, of turfgrass managers. I've always been resistant to that with things like the bobble test, which I was aware of. I I've been aware of that for a long time since, uh, 13 years or something, maybe, maybe a little bit longer, let's say 15 years, never did it always was aware that other people did it. And I'm like, you know what? I'm really comfortable with the stint meter because I think when you roll the ball to measure the green speed, you don't, 
I thought you don't need to put a number to it of, of how the ball's snaking, how the ball's bobbling. And I just thought you'd notice if there's deviations or not, and then you would address them. But what I began to notice in 2018, 2019, 2020 is there were a lot of places I was measuring uh, in Thailand, for, for the most part in Thailand, the green speeds were considered relatively fast by Thailand standards, which would be 10 or above. Yeah. And, and on the bobble test, I would be giving fives or sixes. The ball's just chattering all over the place, snaking a bit, talking to golf professionals who would say, yeah, the, the greens are rolling pretty good, but they're not as good as they used to be. And they, the pros couldn't describe to me what the imperfections were, but they just said, there's something not right with the roll. And I was looking at it going, yeah, the superintendents, and not generalizing too much, but at, at a couple of courses, they were so focused on speed that I had assumed that they would be watching how the ball rolls. And it turned out they weren't. Or if they were, they didn't, they didn't realize that there was a problem. And they were checking the box that, yes, we've achieved the green speed that we're looking for. And they were moving on to other tasks. And that's when I decided uh, about three years ago that I was going to start making a point of measuring the bobble test um, on pretty much every time I do the scent meter, because I, I had incorrectly assumed that turf grass managers were assessing this. And then I realized that at least in some parts of the world, they were not. Yeah, I agree, Mike. And it's one of those things I think, uh, and the Bible test is so interesting. And for those, I, I, most of your audience probably knows the Bible test by now, but if they don't, essentially you can just use the roll when you roll it off a stint meter, but you're essentially looking for the number of times the ball, the ball is maybe bobbling, coming off the ground. If it's chattering, not coming off the ground, but maybe oscillating while it's rolling or snaking left to right. And you're assessing it on a one to 10 scale, 10 being perfect roll, uh, no imperfections whatsoever. One being basically a, a aerated green, uh, so to speak. And I think you're exactly right. I think a lot of people think that stimp meter is an approximate, a proxy for smoothness and that, okay, fast greens must be smoother, right? Um, and, and I think I found the same thing as you, Mike, uh, over time, now that I've taken a bunch of bobble data and stint meter data, fast greens can be bumpy, fast greens can be perfect, slow greens can be bumpy, slow greens can be, uh, or smooth, I should say, not perfect, but smooth and true. Um, and it's it's really interesting because it's it's really kind of a, a qualitative measurement when you're when you're rolling in and rating one through 10. There is a scoring system, but, but there's probably some variability between me and you measuring it. Um, but just putting a number to that smoothness and trueness starts making you think, oh, okay, I saw some weird snaking today. And and maybe I, I didn't roll the greens and I hand mowed them and I'm, oh, I'm seeing some snaking on the mow patterns. I've, I've seen that personally on triplexes where you get some snaking with the mow pattern, um, but it could be rolling at a, at a 10 or an 11. Um, so I think it's, it's something that definitely should be measured. And in my opinion, the bobble, I think you like it, Mike, cause it's really quick, right? You can do it while you're, you're taking your step meter reading and it's, it's no extra time. Essentially there's other ways to measure bobble tests that are, uh, 
more quantitative. They require other pieces of equipment. Um, they take longer. Uh, and in my experience, I've found that they mirror what the bobble test. Uh, yes. Um, Doug Lind has that excellent article from, I believe, from a recent International Turfgrass Society Conference journal where he compared the bobble test and he measured tests of dispersion and he used the greens tester, which is basically you roll balls on a... a ramp and uh, you measure how many out of 10 go in the hole and that is something that i was quite keen about um, about eight years ago and um anyway it turned out that from doug's article he showed very clearly that the most sensitive is the bauble test and it turns out that that matches exactly what golfers see, which to me, that's the whole point. And I think if you're at a facility where you could say that a score of eight on the bauble test, which would be absolutely no bauble, means the ball never leaves the ground. So it's never gonna hit a, a grain of sand or a ball mark or a ridge or a seed head or anything. It's never gonna hit anything that leaves the ground the maximum score you can get if it leaves the ground is a six. And then um, you would have, you would definitely have most of the role. If you're getting an eight, most of the role would be perfect. And you would have a, a couple of little chatter events possibly. Mm -hmm. And that's where the ball just does a little bit of vertical deviation, but it continues going exactly on the line that you expect. And it may do a little bit of subtle snaking, especially as it slows down at the end of the roll. That's an eight. That's an eight for me. And uh, I, I, I think it's, it's just so useful to measure that. And that's what golfers see. And if golfers, then the problem is if you just set it up to roll balls into the hole, if, if you've got freshly core aerated greens and whether you've filled those holes with sand or whether you haven't filled the holes with sand, all the bounces left and right even out. And so the problem is you end up making just as many putts as you would on a perfect green. But golfers will complain quite a bit and, and uh, that, that the greens have a problem, that the ball's not rolling well. And that's why I think the bobble test is just so elegant in that way and yeah. uh, you've you're used absolutely the right you're absolutely and, right it's it's the feedback that golfers are basing their opinions on right and and i think you make a good distinction between uh golfers looking at the ball as it rolls and if they're noticing the bobble or the snaking that's bad versus golfers who don't make the putt and blame the green because they it breaks one way and they thought it broke the other way and they don't make it and that's the cool thing about the bobble is that it measures only what um, is what I would call rational feedback, which is, is the ball rolling true? And it disregards whether the ball goes in or not, because that is completely dependent on how much force you hit the putt with and how you read the putt. I've told this story. I don't know if I've told this story publicly or recorded, but when I gave up on the greens tester, um, as a useful tool. It was on some zoysia greens in the Philippines. And 
Zoysia has relatively stiff leaves, so unless you do some pretty intensive maintenance, the ball tends to chatter and bobble and snake. And you've driven carts across Zoysia fairways with lines burned in, haven't you? Have you ever? I have never been on a Zoysia fairway. Okay. Well, you do that and just take your hands off the steering wheel and you'll you'll know what I'm talking about. I'm sure some of the people watching are listening because as you hit the different stripes, the the cart tires just get jerked to the right. And then you hit the next right, jerk to the left. And so that's in the fairway. And on greens, you won't have it quite like that. But there is that stiffness in the leaf blades that will make the ball um, just move around. So to get a really nice roll on zoysia greens, you have to do some pretty intensive maintenance and then you can get nice roll. Well, this was not on a green that was in play. This was on a zoysia uh, nursery green. So you can imagine it wasn't intensively maintained. I brought my greens tester and I just wanted to shoot videos of of how the ball was rolling and how this greens tester was such a cool tool for assessing how the ball would go into the hole and, and everything. Well, I got going doing that and I couldn't miss. They were all going in. And, and yet my video and my eyes, the ball was bouncing left, right, left, ding. And then the next one, it, and it, just, it was chattering all over the place, snaking all over the place. And we were making like, eight, nine in a row. And, and I'm like, these green, it was, it was obviously an awful roll. And yet the, though that particular test was not identifying the same thing that my eyes were seeing. And then I thought, you know, this is, this is not it. In theory, that's perfect because it's like the objective of golf is to get the ball in the hole. So at first I thought, well, as long as you're getting the ball in the hole, this test is telling you that what more do you want? end of story. And now I realize that that's not what golfers see. That's not what I see. And I don't like putting on greens where I think that the ball is going to bounce left or right or up. Yeah, I, I agree. And and I've saw just personally when I, when I used to practice a bunch putting, uh, you, you may have noticed people use chalk lines or string lines. They'll set up in one spot, you know, maybe five or 10 feet from the golf hole and they'll just hit 50 putts, a hundred putts from the same exact spot. And what you'll notice, and I think actually some research at Virginia Tech showed this, is once you roll a ball once or twice, it really does kind of make a little depression in, in even, even though putting greens are cut at a really low height, it makes a little depression. They call it the legacy effect. Uh, and as soon as you roll five or 10 putts in when I'm doing that practice, you, you almost can't miss. You can cut the putt a little bit and it'll kind of find that track and go in and you can draw it, it'll find that track and go in. And I think the same thing is true with that, uh, with the greens tester method, the whole out test, I think it's called. Um, once you find a, a way to make the putt, you can just kind of roll balls and most of them will find that little track eventually and go in. And, and I think for that reason, it's an interesting way to think about, uh, is the outcome the same of every putt? Like ideally that is what we'd like to have is that a putter from, uh, you know, a golfer from 20 feet away from the hole hits the ball with this amount of force in this direction and it always goes in or it always misses in the same spot because that's we want uh, our greens to be consistent that way. But the reality is measuring that is confounded by that legacy effect. 
and and I think therefore is is not a good way to measure the smoothness and trueness of of the greens. Okay, so I like the bauble test. You say that you like the bauble test. Um, have you used the perimeter, which is an iPhone device, uh, and that's got a ball rolling across the surface, moving an iPhone, um, and that sure seems like a nice use of technology um but it's it's one that i now have one that i have access to um i haven't personally used it but maybe i'm going to be getting some data from it Uh, and i know you've used it how does that compare to the bobble test it's so so the bobble test is one number right and that incorporates the left to right the snaking and the up and down the chattering and the bobble uh, what the perimeter does, like you said, it's an iPhone on basically on a like almost looks like a toy cart and you roll it across the green and use the accelerometers and it measures the up and down component. They call it vertical, vertical deviation and the left to right component, the uh, what they call lateral deviation. And this was actually the first way I ever measured uh, trueness or smoothness on on a golf green. It wasn't the bobble test. It wasn't the whole out test. It was the perimeter. And and, you know, I'm an engineer. I like the numbers and. I'd rather let a machine measure it so that I can remove my any subjective underlying bias I have. If I want the course to be be nice and, you know, maybe I'll rate it differently. So, ah, let me let me just use this thing. It'll spit out a number. And that way it's completely out of my hands. Um, the thing with the perimeter is so it gives you those two numbers. It gives you vertical and lateral deviation. Um, you have to roll it, uh, I would say, maybe 30 to 50 feet across a green at a certain speed and you have to stay, you have to walk at a certain speed. Um, you want to try and avoid going on side slopes because that will shift the lateral component and it will make it higher than it actually is. So you need a good run. Uh, you need about 30 seconds to take the measurement, just one run of it. Um, and then they suggest that you do it in, I think it's at least three directions. So by the time you take the measurement, it, it takes more than two minutes. Uh, it takes a good amount of green space to do. So for us researchers on a plot level, it was infeasible because we have, you know, uh, three meter by three meter plots. So we, we couldn't do that. Um, but it did spit out good data. It gave us really cool data on the up and down vertical deviation, lateral deviation. Um, and, and you'd think, okay, there's greens like you're talking about Zoysia has a lot of that lateral. Maybe Maybe some greens don't have that vertical. Maybe some greens do, but it would be interesting to know. Okay, yeah, what I, greens have maybe lateral, a lot of lateral, but not a lot of vertical? Oh, maybe other greens have a lot of vertical, but not lateral. Yeah, my, In my data, uh, I, I did not find that. I found a very strong correlation between the, the vertical deviation and the lateral deviation. Um, but, but that's on, on basically bent POA putting services. So I've, I haven't done any warm season grass stuff. But um, that was the attraction to me is, okay, I have the two components. They call it uh, smoothness is the up and down and trueness is the left to right. So that was what attracted me to it. Um, it took long. And, and once I started using the bobble test, in general, it, it, it agreed with the perimeter. If I and measured a smooth green, it, it was smooth as as according to the perimeter too. Okay. Oh, thank you. That's kind of what I, I have used the perimeter or, or seen it used and I'm aware that it's not quite as simple as doing the bobble test. Um, and I guess for some people, they will prefer 
to measure it more precisely with that. But I'm, I'm glad to hear from you as uh, I'm not sure. So do I call you an accomplished golfer or that just seems so you're a, we are what you're a, a plus one plus two, something like that. I'm a, I'm a plus three and a half or something. Plus like three that. and a half. Oh, wow. I'm that's, <laughs> that's very accomplished. It's, so, it's, you know, it's just, but you know, I think there's a good point, Micah. A lot of people, uh, when I first got into studying turf grass with Frank, uh, he really liked that I was a good golfer. And, and what I've always tried to tell him and other people is it's not necessarily that I'm good at hitting. A lot of people can be really good at hitting a golf ball into a hole. Uh, I think the thing that I, that I value more than my golfing ability is, is what I'll call golfing IQ um, and, and knowing how a golf course set up how the ball lies, where the wind is coming from, how all of that affects how the golf ball interacts with the club, how it interacts once it's on the ground, for example, firmness. Mm -hmm. um, that's, I, I think, and people can be bad golfers and have good off golfing IQ. Uh, and people can be good golfers and they can have bad golfing IQ just because they're really good at whacking a ball. Mm -hmm. um, so I think a lot of people give me like a lot of credit that somehow my uh, my thoughts on playability mean a lot because I'm a good golfer. I would say it's just because I, I think I'm good at understanding why a golf ball does what it does. And that's, I think, independent of like, I can, oh, I can hit a fade, you know, 180 to 20 feet or something like that. I, I think that's, that's immaterial compared to the understanding of how the golf ball reacts in, in certain situations for me. Okay. Well, I, I, like to hear from you as somebody who does have a plus handicap and has played golf to for money and uh who now competes as an amateur and sometimes wins championships um you must care about playability of the when you're playing golf and then when you're doing your day job which is um assessing various things related to golf course maintenance and and conditions that you would say that something as simple as the bobble test is something that you you like that number or you think there's some utility to that that's um to me that gives it credibility because um i yeah i want to say that i say so i assess it this way so it's fine but hearing from somebody like you for whatever reason it 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 makes me more it reassures me that I'm not just uh, going down the wrong path. I'll tell you this much, Mike. I think we've just accepted turf quality as a standard measure in, in turf grass literature. I don't see bobble test any different, really. I mean, there's a criteria. There's a, there's a rubric for how you score it. Uh, there's a rubric for how you score turf quality. Uh, I think it's the same exact thing. I don't think we've seen it in the literature, and, and that will preclude a lot of people in as you know, in academia, maybe from accepting it as quickly as someone like you or, <laughs> you or me. But uh, I, I think that if if people were to publish uh, and, and use the the bobble test, all of a sudden it becomes something that is is accepted uh, at the, the academia level. But I think superintendents right now, it, I, I think a lot of I think a lot of superintendents like the idea of it because it's so simple and it's. And that's the thing about data, and you, you probably know this better than I do, but what is something that is an impactful measure that you can make decisions, uh, you can use it to make decisions, it's useful to you, 
and it doesn't take you two minutes per green to to use and have to buy a piece of equipment like the bobble test you could literally just roll a ball with your hand and and get a bobble test measurement uh and and it's it's immediately okay uh, i'm at a seven today that's interesting you know last week after my aeration i was at a, a five and okay and and that's the sort of stuff that Chris Tritabaugh has done. And it's really cool data to see how your golf course ebbs and flows in playability, not just through stim meter reading, but that bobble which offers value. I've seen survey data. There's uh, there's one from University of Copenhagen and there's one from uh, Sturf, Scandinavian Turfgrass Foundation. They've asked golfers, okay, how much do you value green speed? How much do you value smoothness? And in both studies, they valued smoothness more than green speed. Um, certainly there's a regional, maybe a societal component to that, but that's really impactful. Like they value smoothness more than green speed. And we should be measuring that, not just stimulator readings. Yeah, well, this, this is fascinating. Uh, I, I'm already getting ideas of things that we can talk about uh, when I have you on another time because because this one, this one is far from over. I, I'm not kicking you off. Um, I'm just like, wow, uh, this is, this is just fascinating for me because, uh, my background is, is pretty typical. I think I got a four year degree in turf grass science in, in horticulture with a emphasis in turf grass science. And I, did internships around the United States on golf courses. I'd actually worked for an entire year before going to university. I graduated from high school a year early and realized I wasn't going to play golf competitively. And I didn't want to play. I didn't want to go to community college to play golf. Though I caddied and did various things. And then I ended up working on a grounds crew. Um, and I just loved it. And then I went to Oregon state for four years. So I graduated, I had a bit, quite a bit of work experience and I went to be a golf course superintendent in well, an assistant superintendent in China. And then within five or six months, I was a superintendent and in way over my head and realized it would be good to go back to grad school and learn even more. And, you know, so I've had what well, after grad school, if we add all the education together, it's nine years of, uh, of university study and a lot of GCSA seminars and, and regional seminars and talking with superintendents and so on. Let's say that's from my career. My, the first 12 years I was in the industry from two, 1994 until 2006. And back then for me, a lot of it, if I look back on it now, a lot of the stuff that I was learning and the stuff that I was doing was about uh, growing grass. It was agriculture based. And it wasn't so much about playability. And it drives me nuts now sometimes talking with some of my peers who are still in the university environment to hear them so focused on, on things that are, to me, related to agricultural, agricultural aspects of turf and maybe how to make your lawn grow a lot or something like that. And it's not so much related to what... I think golf course superintendents should be doing on a day-to-day -day basis, which obviously they have the skills to grow the grass. And everybody always says growing the grass is the easy part. And then they, what they have to do is manage the people and the resources and everything. But I think playability sometimes gets 
uh, forgotten because we don't learn it in school and the industry as a whole has not really focused on it so much. So it's only when you get these exceptional superintendents who they don't go around uh, tooting their own horn so much um, and sharing with everybody all the tricks and what they're actually focused on. Um, but when, they, when they're focused on playability, and I think that is what the focus should be. And I, I wish that there were more classes like that, more seminars about that, and less of this crap about uh, applying balanced fertilizer and stuff that is just guaranteed to increase weeds and guaranteed to increase poa annua and all of these things. It's, 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 it's been frustrating. Well, it's not frustrating, it's fun. Uh, it's fun to have these arguments with people, but you know, if you see where this, where the industry is at in 2022, it's a bit sad that we can't just focus on playability and there's still people that graduate from university. They've done internships. They've had, they've got a four-year degree. And instead of the idea about, uh, instead of the focus being playability, the focus is like, how can we do the most cultivation work to these greens? How can we close the course for at least one day a week? Maybe get in some additional closures. Let's let's close this property for golf so that we can do things to make the grass grow more. And it's just bewildering for me now, as I've gotten older, as I've seen how it's done around the world, and I see places that never close, rarely close, never cultivate, still produce great surfaces. And you're like, um, What's going on with some of the places that are not focused on playability? You, you make a great point. I think in uh, a lot of the teaching and I get why it's about here's all the tools at your disposal and here's how you use all these tools and you go on internships and you learn how to use all the cultivation practices and the different machines and you can do hollow time, uh, hollow time, solid time, spacings and, and time. And I think it's there's always an indirect assumption, there's an implication that this is going to get you better greens or better fairways or whatever. Um, but but very rarely, like you're saying, are you actually doing those measurements? And and I guess the metaphor I would make if we keep it in golf, it would be like if if I took golf lessons and I was at the range and they were working on my swing and I go out and play golf and I wouldn't keep score, I would just go out and play golf. And then I'd come back to the, the pro who was giving me lessons and I'd say, um, my swing didn't feel like this. Can you tell me how, what, what else can I do with my grip that would get the ball to do this? But, but not even keeping track of my score. Did I score well? Did I score poorly? And then I'd just go out again and it would be like, okay, I play golf. And ah, I felt like I hit this one shot bad. And I don't know what I shot, but I don't like that shot. Let me go back and talk to the pro about how I can avoid hitting that shot. Um, it, it, I think it all comes back to you have to define what your goals are. And you mentioned lawn turf, like you spend a lot of time. Okay, here's how you grow a good lawn. What's your goal for a lawn? And, and I work in, in urban, a lot with urban green spaces now and talking to homeowners, is, is your goal 100% turf grass cut at an inch and a half so that you can play soccer on it? Or is it just to have turf cover and and uh, to, to not have to spend a lot of time on it. Like the goal matters. That's the thing that you should base everything around is what is your goal? Um, and I think you're right. I think a lot of people do everything with the, the intent that I'm going to get good playing conditions down the road. And that, that's why they close the golf course. They do the airification spring and fall around here. Early in the spring, people are hollow tining and dumping sand on it. 
late in the fall, they hollow tie and they dump sand on it. And I get that the schedule of a golf course constrains them to have only a certain week here or there to do that. And that's a problem in and of itself. But uh, that's, that's like the pro- programmatic approach to, to greenkeeping, right? There's a program and I've got to, I've got to do this. I've got to do my, my foliar applications. I hear all that. My soil application of fertilizer. I still don't really know what that means. Is um, it, yeah. If anybody is watching this um, live or um, in the future, feel free to drop something in the chat or shoot me an email and tell me what a soil spray is. Um, because <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> I, I, maybe it never, I, I don't know. Some maybe don't get to the soil, out, you know, so I, I agree with you hundred percent. Like, I think we, we spent too much time on all the tools at our disposal and all these things you need to do. And that's, it's, it's ironic because it's a long-term approach that, that, oh, in the, in the long-term, this is good. And, and I think the idea is if I cultivate now, I don't have to do it later. But that never really comes to fruition if you just keep doing it every spring and fall. Um, yeah, and and, you need to do it. Like, I think we need to be maybe maybe what you're saying, and it's a good thing. Should we be more short term focused? How can I not close the next two Mondays and and have good greens conditions? Is that possible? And is that not going to to mortgage uh, my my playing conditions later in, in the year? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's clearly site specific and um, club specific. And there's a lot of places out there that don't close and they get great results. And there's other places that do close and it's essential and they're getting great results too. Um, And I know what my personal preferences might be as a golf player. Um, I, I like to play on surfaces that are really good, no matter when in the year I go. Um, But that's a personal preference. And I think some people don't, they're not so picky about it apparently. But I think um, I, I also have the luxury of being in a job where I can change my mind when I learn new things or realize that I was wrong before. And you may have heard uh, one of my talks or read on my blog where I was speaking in Ireland in March and I used one of my slides from 2014, uh, which is fairly recent, just to say I used to recommend all this stuff. Uh, in terms of core removal, surface disruption, and the amount of sand that's applied. And I don't recommend that anymore. And now I, re- I used to recommend that everywhere in the world as a general approach. And now I, I recommend being much more site-specific. And that was something that I've completely changed since 2014. And it, it's fun for me to be able to correct myself and say, look, I, I used to recommend this. Now I'm I just like to do better and better because you can get great conditions doing that. And there's a lot of places that do, but I think you can get even better. You might need to do more than that, or you might be able to do less. Why would it, why would every single grass, every single soil type, every uh, type of traffic, if, you, if you're doing 12,000 rounds versus doing 60,000 rounds, why would you possibly need the same amount of sand? Yeah. It, I mean, you, it, it's quite likely that you would not. And all of these things are, are so site specific that I realize that I've just sequentially been developing a series of tools or 
uh, techniques that I think can be really useful in being able to optimize conditions in a site-specific way, which is things like MLSN for nutrients, things like growth potential for site-specific nitrogen ideas, things like clipping volume. Uh, Jason Haynes uh, mentioned that uh, when you were talking about uh, uh, things that people won't do in academia because uh, it's not been published, <laughs> and you're like... Uh, Jason says literature also needs to include growth rates. Um, so things like clipping volume, um, it, it's that's very site specific. And then things like OM246 and other things that you can do to measure things in a really site specific way. That's what I recommend now. And I, I don't know if you saw the conversation I had with Andrew McDaniel last week where, okay. I got you on my list. So it's a good one. So I'll describe to you why I was so excited to talk with him about that. Because you might have seen last year, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull up, um, I'm gonna pull this up and just show the tab of something. This I'm showing on the screen now, the ATC website with the uh, playability tag. And last year I did a video that I'm not going to play here, but the video is in a post that is titled what happens when you play golf on greens that were top dressed only once in a year. And I showed ball reaction, ball reaction of bounce and roll on Zoysia greens at the Sansan KBC Augusta tournament last year. And that is, um, that, that is a post that I showed last year. That video is eight minutes long and it shows how the ball reacted on those greens during the tournament. And it just so happened to rain 32 inches or 800 and some millimeters in the few weeks right before the tournament. And the greens had only been top dressed once. And that was kind of remarkable. I was worried about what the surfaces would be like and the ball still bounced and rolled. It was fine. It was a successful tournament. And Andrew's been doing the OM246 testing, total organic matter by depth in the surface for uh, six years now. He's, he started in 2017. So I think we're on the, the sixth year, five growing seasons, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. Yeah. Six, uh, I think six sampling events, five growing seasons. Andrew took samples in February of 2022. After, after last year, when he had only top dressed the greens one time last year. And we talked about this in last week's office hours. And the organic matter did not change. And that's what's shocking to me because in 2014, when I was making those recommendations of everybody should be disrupting the surface a lot and putting a lot of sand down, I was expecting that if you do nothing, things will get out of control. And I know it's only an anecdote. It's only one location that I'm talking about, but it can't be the only place in the world that, that where that's possible. It just can't be. And I, I think that not only does it tell you that at that facility they're able to achieve that but if you're not doing enough 
if if your organic matter is going up year after year after year and if your surfaces are getting softer and softer year after year you by doing that type of testing you also will be able to identify that so now i'm kind of talking about firmness of the grains and i think that so much of the sand that goes down and so much of the holes that get punched whether that's sand injection with a dry jack whether it's solid tines and putting sand in those holes whether it's core removal and putting sand in those holes all of those practices seem to be for the purpose of getting more sand in the green and the whole dilution is the solution or whatever or something like that something like that which is something that i used to say and i don't say it so much anymore because as i've started measuring it and and looking at it it's like whoa 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 Actually, when you punch holes, it makes the surfaces softer, which I wasn't quite realizing, but at least temporarily it makes them softer. And, um, and I'm just, and everybody that puts sand down, they typically are maintaining a faster growth rate than you would if you didn't put the sand down. So you just keep creating more organic matter. And that's where maybe we can transition to talk a little bit about firmness um and and how how that can be assessed because that one you might need a special tool or maybe you don't yeah it's so you make a couple really good points Micah. the the first one um greens that are consistently sand top dressed or or even usga spec greens Uh, so maybe this is where my my playing ability comes in um those can play firm. They can also play soft. Um, but the way the ball reacts on those surfaces, I've noticed is much different than uh, maybe a native soil green that doesn't get top dressed very often. Um, and, and, and this is such a golf nerdy thing, but when I look at firmness, um, okay, where did the ball land and where did it finish? That's kind of the, the baseline. Okay, how much did it, it hit here and it ended up here? Okay, 20 feet, it released. But, but sometimes when I'm playing golf, I'll notice, okay, on, on native greens, it hits and it pops way up in the, in the air. And then it comes down and it spins a little bit or something and stops at 20 feet. A sand-based green, it might hit and it might thud and it doesn't take a big bounce. It takes a small bounce, but then it kind of dribbles out and maybe it's still at 20 feet. And those to me are two different ways to get to firmness, but they're, they're, things I've noticed anecdotally, I don't have a way to measure that yet. I really want to uh, measure some of those dynamics. If you have a sand-based root zone and, and how the spin and the force is, is taken out of the ball and how that relates to how, uh, how it releases. But I've certainly noticed that in my experience as a player, uh, native soil versus sand top dressed or sand-based greens react differently. Um, now how to measure that is, is the hard part. And we use a, a, a pretty uh, cheap, relatively cheap, it's maybe $500 now, but the, the Field Scout True Firm is one way to go. That's, it's uh, very similar to USGA True Firm or the clay gets got a, a kind of a plunger, you release it, it thuds in the ground and it spits out a number. Uh, the USGA True Firm is the same thing. Uh, the clay also is, is another way to go. It's got a missile and you drop it from a specified height. It spits out a number. Um, you know, for a lot of superintendents, I think that's those can be expensive pieces of equipment. Uh, even five hundred dollars, the True Scout—that's it's not cheap. And 
you know, a lot of the courses that uh, might think about using it, you know, maybe they can purchase that. But but the Clegg is starting to get really expensive. Um, USGA True Firm, I don't I don't think you can purchase. But um, I, I like, you know, if, if you don't want to purchase anything, like I, maybe I'll call it the Dan Dinelli method. Have you seen these videos, Micah, where where Dan is is or maybe his assistant superintendent is just chucking balls at the ground and seeing how high they come up? Um, I, I saw the one like, where they did the compost top dressed fairway versus the sand top dressed fairway. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. That video is um, the link is floating around somewhere, but it's a really cool video. And Dan is talking about exactly what I'm describing on a, on a compost, more native soil side of the, the fairway. He's his assistant superintendent is throwing the ball down and it's bouncing up to maybe his knee or his hip. Um, and then they go over to the other half of the fairway, that's sand top dressed. He's throwing it and it's thudding and it's not even coming up to his, his halfway through his calf. Um, and it's very striking and you can really visually see the difference between how those two are reacting. And I think that's just as good of a proxy as, as something like a true firm. It, it starts to get tougher if you're really trying to manage, you know, plus or minus five or 10% firmness. Maybe that's, okay. that's probably not a super accurate way to do that. But Here's, it's an interesting uh, video. For sure. uh, it, it's an, it's a very interesting video. I'm, uh, I'm, I shared it on Twitter last week or the week before, I think I I'll put it, I'm not going to try to bring it up right now because um, I'm not really accustomed to sharing lots of other things. And I'm afraid that I'll mess up our conversation right now, but I made a note to put a link to that in, in the description of this video when I record it and in the podcast version of this also about the Dinelli. So I'll try to, you know what I do? Um, some, it's hard for me sometimes to find the time to listen to all this stuff that I've recorded, but once it's on YouTube, I can listen to it at double speed at two X speed. And because I've already had that conversation sometimes with other people, I don't want to listen to it quite that fast because I'll miss some things. But with, with a conversation where I've, done it i can listen to it at 2x speed and i'll just take some notes of oh yeah i said i was going to share that Danelli video or or yeah. something so i'll uh i'll probably do that and scan through this and try to pull out all the the things that we've referred to like chris tritabal's excellent series of blog posts and and how he's sharing the playability data and that sort of thing yeah so but, so jason I'm, I'm looking at his comment and so i suggested if you don't want to buy a, a field scout true firm or a clegg uh, I suggested throwing it on the ground, maybe measuring how far it comes up or something. Jason suggested uh, subjective, just one to five. How does it feel underfoot? Um, I like that sort of thing where you, you can come up with any way to just rate it zero through three, one through five, one to 10. Um, I, I kind of like if you just make something up, that's a good way to do it. I would do it in the same shoes every time, Jason, for sure. Uh, I'm used to testing a bunch of golf shoes. And uh, we do this work with FootJoy. We test like a bunch of golf shoes every year for how they change the putting greens. But uh, based on the insole, you will feel like you're on a firmer surface or a softer surface. So if you're gonna do that, like just, just use the same shoes every time. Um, another suggestion would be to look at the ball marks, the pitch marks, because uh, you're gonna have unfixed pitch marks on every green. That's just the nature of the beast. Um, you, you uh, I know the U.S., I think it's the PGA Tour, uses kind of a caliper. They drop a ball and 
They measure the, the depth of the pitch mark that this ball makes. If you could just subjectively look at unfixed pitch marks, are they deep? Are they shallow? Like, so some greens that are firm, but that don't have a lot of turf density will have really like skid marks. Uh, so they won't be deep, but they'll be kind of long. So, so that might be an indication of, oh, my turf density isn't uh, quite good enough to repair, to, to handle maybe some traffic. Um, if you get really deep ones that that really plunge into the ground, they expose the soil on the back half, uh, that's maybe soft. Um, and then I would say firm is where you're getting to the point where uh, you're seeing ball marks that don't even penetrate into the soil that are just little depressions that you'd have to really look around for the ball mark. Um, that That's starting to indicate really firm, I think, to me. But uh, so, so pitch marks is maybe a good way to do it. That's that's all very good advice. And here's what I've come around to recommending. Here's what I'm currently recommending. Um, if if you are, for example, a tournament venue and you want to get really precise about how does every single maintenance activity that I do affect the firmness here over time, then I recommend getting the golf course firmness tester from SDI in England which is the, the Clegg from England, the yellow one, the one that the RNA used, that STRI used, the one that I have. And I've used the USGA True Firm, the Spectrum Technologies True Firm, the, that particular Clegg, the PGA Tour ball bearing drop, the mm -hmm. Yamanaka tester in Japan. And by far, my favorite, both for usefulness of the readings, predict uh correlation with what i observe when i play golf or observe uh professional play and ease of use is that particular clegg and okay. and it's called the golf course firmness tester i actually have a atc double cut recorded um about that particular topic that will be coming out sometime in june i think um where but so that's what i recommend if you're um let's say you're um, Beth Page Black and you know that you're going to be um, hosting the Ryder Cup and future major championships and um, state level uh, championships, then if, if, I, if I was wanted to really assess firmness, that's the particular tool that I would want to have. But I think that's overkill for every golf course. And Jason's using a one to five scale that he mentioned. He said, he started assessing firmness on a scale of one to five. And what I would default to for every facility to assess firmness would be a, a three point scale, whether that's ACF or one, two, three or zero, one, two, it's, it's, it's either too soft, just right, or too firm. And that's something that I can assess by what you just described, by watching other people hit balls, by walking across the surface. Well, let's call it a combination of these. By watching other people hit shots and watching the balls react, by looking at the pitch marks that are created, by walking across the surface myself, and by playing golf. I, I can assess that. And I think that anybody that's working professionally in this industry should be able to assess it. So for me, Jason's got two extra points that for me, that's a little bit harder to assess because I'm not sure. 
I'm not sure that I can assess like it's almost too firm, but not quite. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm just going to say it, it's not, if it's, if it's not too firm and I've played on courses that are too firm. I played, uh, Charleston municipal was the last round of golf I played in, uh, early March, late March, mid March. I, I, some, a long time, long time ago, uh, I played Charleston municipal and it's like two-year-old tiff eagle or something so it's sand-based greens warm season grass you know how those are and for a player of my ability with a light breeze on that day um i could hit a a, a full nine iron from the fairway landed in the center of the green and it would bounce over and roll off the back and so I'd land it pin high and you were like, well, you should land it short, but I'm not skilled enough to land it on like, and I was playing with, with uh, borrowed clubs. So my yardages were not perfectly. So I, I couldn't land the ball where I wanted to land it, but it was, it was unfortunate that I landed it well short of the back of the green and it, it, it would go off the green repeatedly. My assessment of those greens are for the caliber of player that was there. I, I would say that's, that's too firm. But I rarely play greens that are that firm. But I know it when I, when I, when I'm on them. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. I like too soft, just right, or or firm, especially for the golf courses that that like you're saying. If they're not going to buy this, uh, the golf course firmness tester, I think that's an excellent way to gauge because you're, you're tailoring toward toward your your members or your daily play if you're public, and that's an excellent way to 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 measure it. I'd think. Uh, you know, when you're talking about when you're watching people play, I think this is, I think this is something I, I think about a lot. I don't know if superintendents think about it, but like the golf IQ portion comes in here where when you're watching people play, I think it's important to know uh, distance, lie, wind, and elevation. Um, so if you have holes where the, the green is elevated uh, by the nature of the ball flight, the ball is coming in at a shallower angle. So if you choose to watch a hole, if, if you kind of want to watch a hole for a couple groups to see what the firmness is like, if you're picking a hole that the green is elevated on, the ball is certainly going to release more on that hole because it's uh, the ball is coming in at a shallower angle. So that's one elevation. And, and the, the inverse is true, where if it's a, a green that's below the level of the player, it's going to be coming in steeper. You're going to see a bigger pitch mark, even if the green is just as firm as another green, uh, and the ball is going to stop quicker. So just having that in mind, having in mind uh, – how far the player is from the green. If they're 100 yards, they're going to be able to stop it probably quicker than if they're 160. Uh, the lie matters. So even if they're just in the first cut or the rough, that's taking a lot of spin off the golf ball. Um, so, so just an example from a fairway, the average PGA Tour player hitting a seven iron will spin, spin the ball about 6,000 RPMs, give or take. If you put them in the rough, that can drop down to 4,000. It can drop down to 3,000, less than half the spin. So again, knowing, okay, where the ball is coming from, that's going to change how it reacts on the green. So just keep that in mind. Uh, and then, of course, the wind. So downwind is going to uh, take spin off the ball. It's going to shallow its, its descent. We call it descent angle. Uh, and into the wind is going to increase the descent angle, increase the spin. It's going to stop quicker. So all those things just to keep in mind when you're assessing. And I think this is a, this is a good point, Michael. Like, you know, we talk about stint meter, you know, we're measuring it to the inch uh, bobble test. We've got one through 10. I think it's okay for firmness. Um, not, not getting so nitty gritty in there. Just, okay. Is it good? Is it, 
Is it too soft? Is it too firm? I think that's, I really yeah. like that. that and we, we might uh, 10 years from now make a different recommendation. But right now I'm really comfortable saying that, that um, if you want to do it more, you, if you want more points on the scale, go for it. But for me, if it's too soft, we need to take action so that it's not too soft. If it's too firm, we also want to take action. And if it's just right, then we want to keep doing what we're doing. And I so I think- I have a question for you, Micah. Can you've I got what kind of question? philosophical? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so so we're, we're talking about data and, and this comes back to your conversation with Doug about tissue testing. You can either start at the simplest version and build your way up to something that you like, or you can like, and what I've done is start at the more com most complex level and measure everything and then kind of filter in what I like and what I think is, is unuseful. Would you rather start at this very simple base, too soft, just right, uh, too firm, even, even if you don't have, like if you don't have a stint meter, you could do the same thing, right? You could do too fast, too slow, just right. Would you rather start at that kind of simplistic level and then kind of add things as, as you kind of feel like, oh, I like this piece of data, I'm gonna add some stuff? Or, yeah, or it seems it's, like you like that, that bottom it's, up approach, right? It, it certainly seems like it. If I, if I would assess the way that I think about managing turf grass it's, and, and, and taking measurements and spending time, I want to, I, I don't want to do something if it's not having an effect. Which is why I was making that joke about soil sprays earlier, because it's like, what are you trying to accomplish? And, and what is that? And, you know, people use words like soil conditioner or something, maybe not so much in the US, but in Europe, I hear words like soil conditioner and stuff. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. What, what's a soil conditioner? It's like, is that, is it a fertilizer? Is it a biostimulant? Is it a wetting agent? Like we could be specific, but when you say the word soil conditioner, I'm like, whoa, why, why, what are we trying to accomplish with that? So to go back to your question, definitely, if you're talking to me, probably the way that my brain is, has tended to be wired or the way that I tend to respond to things is, um, building it up from fundamentals and, and from the simplest thing. So as I find something that works and then I, if I decide that it's, it's useful, I'm going to recommend that, but I don't want to, um, do it a complicated way when it could be done easier because the golf course maintenance work never ends. There's always trees that could be pruned or bunkers that could be edged or, um, you know, ponds, pond edges that could be beautified or T markers that could be, I mean, there's, there's drainage to install. There's an endless amount of work and I don't like to waste it waste that time doing anything that's not absolutely essential and that's why I, I will tend for whatever reason i'll tend to try to simplify and I'll, I'll give another example it's not quite it's not related to playability but this this week is the 10th anniversary of the introduction of the mlsn guidelines which okay. is a joint project that uh, atc me did with larry stoll and wendy galerter from pace turf and in 2012, this week in Philadelphia, Larry made a, a presentation about MLSN 
and that abstract is available on the Pace Turf website. And I think there will be an update this week on the Pace Turf website that will share that and show those original MLSN guidelines. Well, those you're familiar, Carl, with the current MLSN guidelines, which are potassium, phosphorus by a single extraction method, Malik 3, calcium, magnesium, sulfur. That's it. Well, you'll, you might be interested to know if you haven't checked that 10-year-old abstract of the original MLSN guidelines, those had three different phosphorus numbers, one for Malik 3, one for Bray 2, one for um, Olson. They had a sodium number for a maximum sodium that you wanted to stay below. They had minimums, I think, for iron, nitrate, and ammonium. There was a lot more to it. And as as I looked at it, and then we came up to version two, there was back and forth between me and Larry. And mostly from my side, I wanted to simplify it and just look at the things that are really essential to it. And that's, so you ask that question and, and it reminds me of MLSN and various other things where I will tend to simplify, but I'm very, if it turns out that manganese is really important, we have all the data and we will add manganese to MLSN. But until I'm, it, the, the sodium thing as a maximum instead of a minimum was confusing people. And the nitrate and the ammonium, I just didn't think were necessary. And um, I didn't want to do micronutrients with Malik 3 at that time and have it maybe as an appendix or something, I would be comfortable with it, but not on par with in the same table with phosphorus and potassium. And now, and you, you might be able to imagine that in my mind, I'm thinking about some other things that I might like to drop out of MLSN too. Um, but um, that's, that's not about playability, but definitely I like to simplify. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, it goes to the, uh, I think it respects the superintendent's time too. Like when you suggest something, you want to suggest it that it's, it's going to be impactful and, and, take the least time to get it and get the most value out of it. Uh, and that's why I like that approach. And I've like, in my work, I take the opposite because I like to have all these stuff and I, and I can be a person who can look at all the data and sift through. Okay. I don't, I've rated every state park golf course green uh, for their light availability, their, their air movement, uh, the, the percentage POA and bent. I've done this for literally like 200 golf greens. And over time, I was like, okay, I, I measured all the air movement. I, I have this light rating. I'm just going to use the light rating and then and distill it down. But for a superintendent, you've got so many other things to do. Start simple and build up. I think that approach is, it respects the superintendent's time and and the value that they're going to get out of it to start. And then you can add things, right? And I think that's the clipping volume thing. I think forever superintendents know growth rate and how that maybe reacts and how that correlates with playability. But I think that was one thing where it's like, okay, maybe it's worth that extra minute to put it in a bucket and measure it. And and I've and I've gotten uh, maybe six, seven superintendents to do it in New York, and every time it's impactful, and every time it's like, oh, like wow, I was growing at five times the rate in this month than I was this month. Whoa, okay, and like I I never would have thought that, and that is impactful, and that is what 
is cool about taking some of this data. And I think the same would happen for playability data too, is wow, okay, my bottle test went way down. Like that 50% reduction, oh boy, like what happened there? Yeah, like what I measure, what I measure myself is pretty intensive, but it's not what I recommend other people do because I'm doing this often for research purposes. So this is this is one green from uh, this is this is the 18th green at uh, the PGA Catalonia during the um, the recent Catalonia Championship on the DP World Tour. I measured the clag nine times, TDR nine times. I measured soil temperature at three locations, surface temperature at three locations. I measured the temperature, the humidity, the heat index, the dew point, and the wind speed. I measured the stint meter at three different locations on the green, together with the bauble test on three different locations. Um, and I noted the work that had been done and the time exact time of day and then i went and did that on some other greens also i don't recommend that people do that but that's what i do and i i'd like to share with you what i currently recommend that in terms of playability measurements and get your feedback both as somebody who who does this for work and as somebody who's interested in golf course maintenance and as somebody who plays golf and and I'd like your feedback on this. So what I'm currently recommending for typical golf courses would be once a week through the year, measure the green speed on three greens. At the same time you're measuring the green speed, measure the bauble test mm -hmm. and assess the firmness on that three point scale. And the first time you do it, it may not and, and do that on three greens. So I think that'll take maximum one hour. So now you've got, you've got green speed, you've got bobble test and you've got firmness. If you're on a, if you're year round, as you do that, eventually you're going to have 52 data points. Generally, I, re I recommend Friday as being pretty good because I think that's, it's prepped for the weekend on weekend. You don't have time. And on Monday or Tuesday, there might be maintenance work or there's a lot of ball marks right after the weekend. And, and it's not, quite ideal so i would think like thursday or friday go measure that that's let's say you spend one hour a week or you maybe you have two people do it that's two two hours per week two working hours per week and i think that's really valuable after one month two months three months that you'll start to see how maintenance activities affect your peaks and your lows and you'll see and then you can multiply if you're if you're at the standard that you want you can multiply that by seven and so you just assume that it was that way all week or if you i mean basically you could assess that by weeks you could say for 52 weeks of the year we were at or above our minimum playability standard but you could also say on eight weeks out of the year we failed to meet that and if you want to multiply that by seven and now you've got it in days and to me, that is a really simple way to get started. One hour a week, you by measuring three, at least three greens, you're able to take an average. And that that now you've got speed, you've got smoothness and trueness of roll, and you've you've noted firmness. 
which I, and then now you can look at what your recovery time is from disruptive practices and does verticutting and top dressing regularly seem to increase your firmness or not? And so on. Yeah. I, I like, I, I, for sure. I like that. I think the first thing that superintendents are going to do when they do it weekly is they're going to want to do it more. <laughs> I, I think at least the superintendents I've worked with, and maybe this is just, and Dave Hicks, you know, Dave Hicks is uh, just recently retired from the Cornell golf course. I can hear him in my head saying, well, if you're going to do just Fridays, why don't you just do it Wednesday and, and Monday too, because things can change on a dime. Uh, and, and I do agree with that. Um, the one adjustment, I think if you're somebody who would rather do one green three times a week, I, I don't hate that either. I think if you if you choose the correct green that is a a proxy green for the rest of the golf course uh that that would be a good approach too you can get more time uh, more more data points in the time series and and you might note some uh some more trends on on just the the time scale of how maintenance practices change how your greens are but i do like the three greens because i think a good categorization for most courses that i've dealt with is you have uh, your your indicator greens, right? Your poor greens that that show damage first, that uh, are, are in bad growing environments. You have your best greens that have full sunlight, and then you got just your normal green. And I really do like that because that outlines the uh, the variability surface to surface. And sometimes that's just as valuable as knowing uh, the number of your average green. I think uh, I, I've seen certainly golf courses where there's there's uh, huge differences in the size of greens and the growing conditions that you can get stip meter readings that are literally two feet different from green to green. And the bobble will be a six versus a, a or it will be like a five versus an eight. And that's a big difference. Um, so if you have a green that's maybe more consistent throughout the property, uh, maybe you could allocate that three times a week, one green, if, if you feel comfortable doing that. But most golf courses, I would say, have that sort of bad, good, average growing environment. And that's why I like the three greens um, for, for those exact measurements you're talking about. Like, I think it's it's stint meter reading. You do the bobble while you're taking the stint meter. And some measure of, of firmness, I think, is is a really good way to just, just dip your toe in the water. And the thing I've found is if, if people can just dip their toe in the water, I think they realize pretty quickly that it's valuable. Um, I would caution people if they start on that sort of process, don't start reacting really quickly to everything. Um, I would say just, just measure it and file it away for a, a month or two months, and then be a little bit more retroactive when you, you analyze it. Don't be so reactive to like, oh, okay, today was, was eight and a half. Last week was nine and a half. What did I do? Because like clipping volume, the, the weather can really change the, the, the green conditions. Uh, we've seen this at our research plots, like we can measure at 7 a.m. where there's still some moisture in the top sort of uh, canopy. Uh, two hours later, the green speeds increased uh, a foot and a half and, and bobble got better. We didn't do anything to the greens. It just evaporated out and, I, and made the greens play better. So that's another thing is, is time of day or, or conditions. So if, if you just yeah. got a hammered with rain, postpone it a day um that makes a big difference too so that, that'd be the other qualifier I'd yes say. Just make 
time of day consistency or, or the, the type of weather consistency. Yeah, I, I think it, it's the more often it could be done, the better. But at minimum, I think once a week and not really reacting to it in the short term, but reacting to it very strongly in the medium to long term by saying, um, wow, we we didn't we consistently had a problem with firmness or something or or the in and you can start to see the variation from green to green also by measuring multiple greens and if you do that you can then start trying to minimize the variability and making things more consistent which from a playability perspective is is pretty important and you know the, the I know the stip meter was invented to kind of assess uh, variability across all your greens, um, but and maybe this is where my my player instinct comes in again. Um, sometimes the feedback from golfers can be that a certain green was slow or fast. I would make sure that that you know if they're if they're singling out one green in particular, just noting the slope on that green. Because greens that have more, if you have a, if you have flat greens on your golf course, and then you have two that are really tilted, um, uphill putts are going to come up short from golfers on those holes because they're not used to that slope, and downhill putts will go past the hole on those holes because there's a lot of slope. So that would be another qualifier <clears> make, is, I make uh, is the slope on the hole is <laughs> to to gauge golfer feedback and kind of oh was it on ten okay ten's got that real false front that you got to watch out for. Yeah, golfer feedback can be a challenge. Um, I, um, I think we talked about this a couple years ago um, about how I, I really want to figure out what golfers can tell in terms of differences in green speed because the amount of research that's been done about that is very limited, and yet people, it will, people seem to take it as a hard and fast rule that professional golfers probably can't tell anything less than a six inch difference but it's it's not quite clear if it's plus or minus six inches which would be a one foot difference or whether it's plus or minus three inches it's absolutely not clear if that's what people's perception is and then like average golfers sometimes can't tell plus or minus six inches it's really vague what people think and it's not there's been a a little bit of research by car uh, dr karcher and dr nikolai and maybe brandon horvath um, at, at Michigan state. Um, so they've, they've done a little bit of research like that, but, and then you look at it, it's like, wait a second. I think some of this was on research plots and it was, uh, with golf course superintendents as the testers, not, not, um, they, that's who was doing the assessing, not average golfers. And I think they might've done some of this at, at a, uh, professional tournament in maybe at the, is it Franklin Hills where that tournament used to be? I'm, I, sure. I'm I aware of the one you're talking about, the superintendents, and, and that was the case, which is and like, that was, yeah. So, it, but it, and I'm like, now green speeds are faster generally around the world. Green speeds are faster than they were when that work was done, and I want to be a little bit more precise with it and do more complicated statistics. So I've because the green speed, as you mentioned, it changes, and so I I tried this in Bangkok, and I was measuring the green speed um, through a morning just continuously. So my, the person who was helping me do the experiment, she was interacting with the golfers and 
at, and telling them what they were supposed to be putting, where they're supposed to putt to, how, how they're supposed to rate it. And I was just there constantly measuring green speed for hours. And, and it varies like crazy, even though we're measuring in the same spot, it's, it's, it was, I expected it just to go down, get slower and slower, but it was actually getting faster for a while. And, but I almost completely forgot my, lost my train of thought, but I remembered it. It, because it's to go back to what the golfers think that they're doing and the golfers, what they were rating was absolutely unrelated to what I was measuring in terms of green speed. And there were a lot, some professional golfers there that were rating it and they, they were, they were wrong more often than they were right. And they really are confused about uphill versus downhill. And I'm, I'm talking about green speed, but they're talking about this particular putt seems fast or slow to them exactly and, then, and it's in thailand and and it's like and and we were mostly dealing with thai golfers or japanese golfers for the most part it's like gosh we we have some huge communication issues but i realized we can't even my the we were communicating this in thai also and it just wasn't getting across and i realized probably anywhere in the world what golfers think of as green speed is so for them it must be so related to the slope of the putt that it's really tough to tease out the answer that i was trying i was trying to ask a question but i i wasn't getting an answer to the to this they were answering a different question than the one i was answer, asking golfers don't speak our language micah and it's it's fascinating for me to put when i play in competitive events and i, I play with good golfers and they there's always they'll make some comments about the greens, whether they're really good or really bad or fast or slow. Um, and it's just so interesting to me because they'll, a lot of them try to be like, Oh, these are only rolling like an eight or like, Oh, they're only rolling like a 12. And it's like, guys, I've spent so much time taking step meter readings. I can't tell you from putting on a green. I can't get within a half a foot of very often of the step meter reading. And that's because, like usually when I'm measuring stint meter readings, I'm not also putting on the green, which is kind of interesting, but, but that's someone who is familiar with stint meter readings. I'm, I'm not going to say if it's a 10 or 11, I don't know, somewhere in there, but, but these people feel really like, oh yeah, this is like only a nine and a half today. And I'm like, okay, but that you just hit an uphill putt and you left it short. So it, and, and they also think that uh, green speeds change from uphill to downhill. So they will be like, Oh, it's running like a 15 downhill. And I'm like, that's, that's not how it works. It's, it's not like it rolls eight uphill and down 15, like there's a green speed. And then there's how the slope is, is affecting the ball. Yeah. And, I think uh, and so much of it is their perception based on how they're playing too. That, I that think, is such a big component of it. And I, yeah, I think there's opportunities for people to do really practical research about things that are so important to players like green speed and just trying to understand that more which is part of the reason why i measure three different locations on a green because i'm trying to measure i'm trying to measure both green to green variation but also within green variation and i've done that on hundreds of greens now and and here's one of my pet peeves and one of my research projects and why I have a lot of notebooks full of this data is I go to tournaments sometimes and I see the, um, whether it's the tournament agronomist or the rules official, they'll go make a single stint meter measurement 
they will fail to make a breedy correction on it and they'll often measure something that's invalid because there's more than an 18 inch difference between the rolls more than a if you're using the full length stint meter and they they won't do something that's gratuitous but it will often be a little bit long so it means they're overestimating the green speed by a small amount and then they'll sometimes based on one single measurement on a green make a decision of this green's going to get an extra treatment bring the roller over here or they're like skip this treatment and i i'm i'm trying to do statistics on this to figure out like what the probability is that they're making a correct decision like how like how how far from the overall average of all the greens do you need to be before it's valid that you can be confident that your single measurement that you've made on a green is something that you should actually change the maintenance work. And I've been to enough tournaments and seen how, to me, it's just, uh, it's a bit absurd how people take these numbers as fact uh, um, of like, we've measured the stint meter at one location. So now we're going to change the work on this entire green relative to the other greens on the property. And your people on radios, phone calls, um, equipment staged to do all of this differential work that to me, I'm just like, mm, I, I'm afraid there's some, some misunderstanding of numbers there and statistics. So, um, it, it's something I don't have an answer for, but I'd like to be able to make a, a probability of like, what's the probability of people making a correct or incorrect decision in those cases? <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. Cause I was, I was at PGA, uh, uh the PGA at Beth page in, in 2019. And, and so I was the person who would get all the stint meter readings and, and kind of just make a little one pager and it had all the green speeds and standard deviation. And I use, you know, you were referencing that six inch work. I did plus or minus six inches. So within a foot, so I actually made it a foot range. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I tried to be conservative. So I wasn't, uh, I, I went conservative in the sense that I wanted uh, an outlier to be a real outlier for it to necessitate a different practice. So that's what we did. And honestly, it, it, and I gave it to the, to the, uh, Mike Hadley, the superintendent and, and Andrew Wilson, the director of, uh, of grounds there. And I think they, and, and the really cool thing about the setup guy, Kerry Hague at the PGA is it sounded like he was just interested in vaguely what they were. And then he would put around and figure out, okay, so today, whatever the green is today, and you measured it, it was X. Um, I like this because when I want to do a pin location here on Sunday, this green speed is perfect for it. If it's faster than this, I'm not going to be able to use this pin. And so, so I need it to be whatever this is on Sunday. And, and it, it, regardless of what the number was, that sort of feel is the, is the uh, extra thing in relation to the data that, that makes it a good setup. Um, so I agree hundred percent, like the, you know, parsing six inches here and there it's it's really when you start to get outlier greens i think that that you can start making those changes not like a, oh it's a it's a foot and two inches you know oh boy i i don't think that makes a difference for, for i don't think the the pros can tell you oh yeah that's this is 14 inches uh, faster and, and clearly this can't be put it on right i think it, it's got to be an outlier for me to be uh to be requiring that different maintenance. Yeah. And I think, um, I think ones that are an outlier, they should be checked at multiple locations and make sure you're just not on a fast spot or a slow spot. 
because that same difference that you get from green to green, when you start measuring multiple locations on the same green, you get similar levels of, of variation. Variability. Absolutely. And so you're, you're talking about a foot and th that's about in the ballpark. So you could conceivably on a tournament prepared green have um, one spot that's a valid stint meter roll that's rolling a foot different than somewhere else. Now it, it might not be common, but it may not be an outlier either. And then when you start treating that entire green different saying, we're going to skip, uh, we're going to single cut this one and no roll because we've, our stint meter spot just happens to be fast. Uh, it's something that, that concerns me. Um, and I think if you've got, that's where clipping volume can come in really handy. If the greens are all growing at about the same rate, then you can realize, okay, this is okay. But when you have big differences in growth from green to green, that tends to correspond with different green speeds and playability, I think. So that's where I think the clipping volume can be really useful. Absolutely. And, and, uh, so long story short at Beth page, there are a couple greens that got rebuilt to USG specifications probably a decade ago. And we just actually recently last year, Mike Hadley was clipping, clicking, clip, collecting clipping volume. And those greens grow substantially less than the other greens, which, which don't grow a lot anyway. It's, it's actually the most consistent clipping volume I've ever seen from a golf course, the range of what they, they vary. And that's why they're Beth Plage Black. But these USGA spec greens were much lower. And, and that was fascinating to look at. It's a slightly different um, uh, turf surface as well. So it, it's, it tracks exactly what we were saying. The, the clipping volume is, is certainly co connected to when we see green speeds that are faster or slower than, than other greens. Well, that's, that's really good. I, thanks everybody in the chat. Um, if anybody has any more questions, now would be a good time to put them in there. We've had, um, was it, uh, Randy, Randy said hello from Bulgaria. So we've had Randy from Bulgaria, Jason from Canada. Bernardo is now checking in from, uh, Portugal and he he thinks he says clipping volume is also very useful and also the average clipping volume. He's been making these measurements at a couple golf courses where he works in Portugal. And he, uh, he and I disagree a little bit about infiltration. Um, I had a chance to spend some time with Bernardo in, uh, when I was in Catalonia a, a few weeks ago and uh, we collected a lot of this data together. And I can't remember how much we talked about infiltration. He he makes a note here that it seems also important. And I guess uh, uh, here's what I'm going to say about infiltration. Is it's incredibly important um, because the the practical infil infiltration the you need to have water being able to go into the surface and and get away from the surface. So it needs to infiltrate and then percolate through and drain um i don't know that we actually need to measure it um so for me um if if it's a problem we're going to see it because the surfaces will be consistently too wet so if you're in a place like uh, western canada or uh, seattle or portland or corvallis or bandon um, places on the pacific northwest uh 
uh, or if you're in Ireland or Scotland or England, places where in the winter time you have relatively low evapotranspiration and relatively high precipitation. If you have a problem with infiltration, it will become obvious. And I, to me, I don't really see where it's necessary to put a number to infiltration. That's also something I've managed to go my entire career without paying attention to and without measuring. And that's the kind of thing that it might turn out that five years from now, I say, you know what? I, I sure wish I didn't go on the record saying how I didn't think infiltration was important because I now find it an essential tool that should be measured every Friday. So, um, you know, uh, I, I reserve the right to change my mind. <laughs> but up to now, I'm, I'm not so keen on infiltration numbers. Well, I recognize that it's absolutely essential. If you don't have enough infiltration, you are definitely not going to have good playability. Yeah. I don't know. Have yeah, you measured I, that? I, I'm the same way as you, Mike. I don't, I haven't really looked at infiltration. Honestly, really haven't even looked at infiltration data much ever. And, um, yeah, it, it seems like it would be a hard thing to measure. And, and maybe if you're someone who's, uh, renovating a root zone, you might say, and, and trying to improve uh, drainage vertically, that might be something to figure out, okay, how much did this practice improve my drainage, but, or my infiltration that that might make sense. But um, I think if we're, if we are measuring firmness, if we're assessing the grains as being too soft, just right, or too firm on a weekly basis, if the greens don't infiltrate enough, at some point we're going to have irrigated the night before and that water is going to stay close to the surface and the surfaces should be too soft or it's going to have rained and there's going to be a puddle on the green and we're not going to be able to take a stint meter measurement because there's standing water on the green and we will be able to note that of this green was unplayable due to an infiltration problem. I, so I always feel it's going to be very obvious and you should be able to track that problem um, that problem shouldn't sneak up on you. It should be like, man, the greens sure don't dry down like they used to. Or our, if you're doing the OM246 measurement, you're going to see our OM2 keeps going up. Our OM4 keeps going up. It's like we're not, we're not, we're clearly not doing enough because the research from New Zealand, there's a really good article by Glasgow et al. from New Zealand. And the, uh, the OM2 is, very highly correlated with infiltration rate and that and that's it's just like this is this is something where i think we let's just measure the om2 which is easy rather than go to the trouble to measure the infiltration rate which is problematic and challenging yeah. alan joined us also he said he came in late uh, but he's going to rewind and check out the whole video. Well, I hope you find it worth your time, Alan. Thank you. It's, uh, it's fascinating for me to talk to someone like Carl who applies that engineering type of mindset, but it's also somebody who plays golf and enjoys golf for recreation and competitive and then works in the industry. And uh, it's fascinating for me. So do you, how often do you play, Carl? Uh, so I play, uh, I've got an interesting, if, if you're interested in my golf uh, improvement practice, it's very much like your philosophy, Micah. So once I stopped uh, playing professionally, you know, working a lot, 
my goal was, my thought was, this is very interesting because it's, it's your thought and turf is, can I get better and do less? Like what's the least amount I can do to, to be a, a decent golfer? And so the last couple of years I said, you know, I, I don't like practicing at the range anymore. I don't like practicing putting. Um, I like playing golf. I like to play golf. And if I'm playing in a tournament, I play 18 holes. So what if I, whenever I go to the golf course, the only thing I do is play 18 holes and, and, you know, I warm up for 10 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever, and then go out and play 18 holes and keep all my stats and, and look at all my ball striking stats, putting short game, whatever. Um, and what if that's the only thing I do when I go to the golf course, what if I don't hit range balls and I don't practice, but I don't sit there for an hour chipping. Um, so I play like two times a week, maybe sometimes three, if I get out on Friday, um, and I keep all my stats and over the last three years, I've gotten a stroke and a half better. Uh, and I go to the range maybe four or five times a year, just when it's like, I got to hit some balls just to, if I want to do something with my swing, but almost every time I go to a golf course to play, I tee it up, I play 18 holes and I go home. And, and that's literally my practice. It's, it's just simulating the, the tournament, um, to an extent. And that has worked for me. I don't think it works for everybody, but it's, 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 I spend less time at the golf course. I spend more time with my, my family here, which is good. Um, I've gotten better, which is good. My stats have all gotten better, which is very interesting. And I practice less and I don't really like practicing anymore. I'd rather be playing the shots and playing the golf course. So that's, that's what I do. I play uh, on the weekend, usually Saturday, Sunday, maybe one time other uh, during the week. And, and that's my, uh, <laughs> that's my practice. So to speak. That's, that's very good. Um, is your main course, the Robert Trent Jones course at Cornell university? Is that where you play a lot of rounds? Yep. Yeah. That's basically all my, my home golf. And then every once in a while I'll go to another golf course. And What's that one down I, by the lake? Newman, Newman. Newman Park? Municipal, yes. Yeah. That I had a couple really fun rounds down there. I always felt like, um, if I got it going down there, I could birdie every hole, which I, I never did never close to it but it, it was just the kind of course and i'm like i like this course it's fun it's a, yeah it's a, it's so i grew up in ithaca and and played cornell and newman as a kid and newman was very much the nine hold either had skins games and there's all different kinds of people who come down there and you know you get you get older the older guys would push me around tell me i'm doing stuff wrong and oh, you can't stand in my line here you got to wait until, <laughs> I, until i tee off and, so that you can tee off afterwards and and Cornell was kind of a, a larger golf course, 18 holes. And, um, but I've, I've learned to appreciate it. Basically, anytime I go to a golf course, I find the good things I like about it. And as a player, I'm always like, Ooh, like even if it's just the, the most bare bones, you know, straight up and back, you know, a bunch of, bunch of holes that are, that are maintained very minimally, I'll always find something that I like because the experience of playing golf to me is is what I enjoy and just being out there and being like, Oh, you know, even this, though this green was a circle. Oh, it was kind of, there was this weird little putt that I didn't read right. Ooh, I like that. Um, <laughs> so that's the kind of stuff I, I try and, and whether I'm playing at, at Cornell or another golf course, I try and focus in on and, and enjoy. What do you think the median green speed is in on golf courses in New York? If we take everywhere from the place that's even more basic than uh, Newman municipal, and go me, I'm, I'm gonna do let me just add i've got it up here oh you 
You have the I've number? Got, I've got my state park data, which is a wide range of golf courses. Um, it looks like about eight to eight and a half. And that includes Bethpage? That includes uh, the black course as one. Yep. And then this would be 14 other golf courses. And that's the um, median, not the mean. Is that th That's the mean. So let me, uh, I don't know what the median would be. The median is probably, I, I would say more like eight to seven and high sevens. So half, so that's saying on any given day during the golfing season, if we would go to one of the state park courses, half of them would be above half, half would be below. Something like that. Let me get the median. Median is, oh, I didn't like that. Live coding. It, it, that's impressive. Eight, eight and a quarter. Eight and a quarter. And quarter. that's not, is that, is that like monthly measurements or, or something this, like that? This was one point. This was taken uh, throughout June in 2018. So okay, um, that would be, that would be prime kind of golfing weather. These weren't on weekends. So that's like a weekday. Me trying to get around at a, at a good time of day. They mowed the greens in the morning. Um, so half half the half the courses had a green speed less than eight and uh, eight feet three inches. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. That's that's the type of number that I expect is reality. Um, yeah. Although if yeah. if when I talk with some other people, they start saying that the median within their region is like twelve or something, and I'm like on a daily basis. On a, do you know what? So what you're saying is, you half the courses are averaging above that on a daily basis. It just seems improbable to me. Um, but you hear crazy green speed numbers thrown around, and and, and it, so I'm asking you again as a kind of getting back to your competitive golf that you play and what green speeds are do you like putting on what green speeds are in tournaments and, 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 and what, what is the reality versus the perception uh, on the golf course maintenance side? Cause I think a lot of people, I don't know. I, I I'm interested to hear your, your comments on this. Yeah. I think the, whenever I hear a conversation about like, Oh, you know, the course around me are at 12. I think it's not a representative sample of all the golf courses. It's probably just the private clubs in that area that have the competition, the, like the, the person down the road complex. Oh, the person down the road is 12. I gotta be 12 and a half. Um, but there's just so many, at least in central New York, there's so many golf courses that are just daily fee. I, I like to call them mom and pop, not derogatory, but just as single owners, just operating a golf course. Uh, people who are owner, superintendent, uh, running the, the restaurant, even um, there's so many of those golf courses that when you look at the average, uh, it's definitely something more more near the eight range um, for tournaments. Certainly courses that host kind of competitive events are going to be skewed higher, but very rarely will we play a tournament that and I don't measure the stint meter readings when I, when I play a tournament, obviously, but it doesn't feel like we ever get over 10 or or. 10 and a half, maybe at the, the highest ones, but, but that feels, uh, that feels like a very good, fair test of, of green speed. You'll hear my dog crying in the background. <laughs> yeah. I, how's your time? I, I, I think we can kind of wind it down, 
Um, yeah, I think so. It's you know, to, to finish that conversation, I think as a player, it, it doesn't matter what you're competing on. Um, there are players who will complain if the greens are slower. By and large, I, I think someone like uh, like me has a mindset of if, if you're playing a competitive tournament, it's the same for everybody. And, and therefore, it doesn't matter what the conditions are. It's mm-hmm. the lowest score still wins. And it is shocking to me how many people will get to a golf course where the, the greens are maybe not perfect or maybe they're a little slow. And on the putting green, they're warming up to, oh, my God, I can't get it to the hole. And I'm kind of thinking, I'm like, you've got half an hour until your tee time. You can learn how to hit it a little harder. Like, it's this isn't this isn't a greens problem. This is a you problem. Yeah, I would uh, say. That's, just, that's just a mindset I have. And, and, and I, I know everybody doesn't have that mindset, but I, I'm perfectly say. fine competing on a seven foot green because it's it's the same for, same for everybody. Yeah, I had a couple of great conversations with a pro in uh, Spain who's retired now, but he's won uh, some tournaments around the world uh, and uh he uh we were talking about weather and playing in scotland and i mentioned uh you know it's well what do you think about playing in that kind of weather because sometimes the weather can be pretty harsh and he's like oh i love it because you know i've already beaten so many even at the pro professional level he's saying a lot of people would just get there and they're like oh i can't play in this you know it's it's too windy it's too rainy and he would feel like of course it's challenging but mentally he just keeps telling himself what a great player he is in those conditions. And he feels like that gives him an advantage. And so what you're saying about just play the course as you find it and adjust your game, you should be skilled enough to do that. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, and, and I talked to tournament organizers for our state organization and uh, the, the best player shoots the low score every, every week. It's not the, you know, a lot of people think they're the best player and that through some, extraordinarily uh, unlucky so, uh, uh, string of events that they got all these bad breaks that made them score 10 sh- shots higher than the person who won. Uh, the, you weren't the best player that week. The best player was the one who shoots the lowest score. And that's how, always how it works. Sometimes, And it's a different test at every golf course. But the bottom line is whoever the best player is that week shoots the lowest score. And it's not about you got, oh, you got a bad break here and, and oh, I lost by seven. Like, no, you just weren't as good as that other person. And like, that just happens. So, <laughs> mentality yeah. thing. It's, it's the, the green speed issue. Also, another thing that I noticed, you mentioned that the type of tournaments that you play, they're 10, maybe 11, but nothing like crazy. And I've been to enough tournaments around the world at the professional level and see the greens at like 11, 11 and a half maybe 12 a little bit over 12 and then that's typical and then i hear some people say oh we we have to slow them down for the tournament we have it faster than this for our members on a daily basis and it's like okay of course you could but i don't understand why anybody would want to play on greens that are like that it's i if if you can have a major championship on greens that are rolling 12 or if you can have a major championship on greens that are rolling in at 11 and a half why can't you play golf on Thursday afternoon on greens that are rolling 11 and yeah. why does it have to be faster? I, I don't know. That's, I'm not, I'm glad I'm not a superintendent at some club where the green committee is insisting on, on more than that because I wouldn't want to do it. And I know people 
get put in that situation where they have to. But I've also measured around the world a lot of places where they're 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 charging a green fee of almost three hundred dollars, and the tea time is and it's fully booked, and people are playing on greens eight feet, nine feet, and they're so happy, so happy to pay their money, so so happy to be out there and enjoy the round and not complaining about the green speed. And I just think it's a pity all the work that has to get done in order to have some green speeds when what you're talking about was average across a big set of golf courses. What I've measured is what's average across a big set of golf courses. What we've both seen is what the green speed is at, at major championships or professional level or high level amateur tournaments. Um, and then seeing what some people are forced to produce on a, on a daily basis. I, I, it doesn't align, right? It's, it doesn't align. And we talk about this with our, with our state park golf courses is uh, there's courses where if it's a nine and a half foot green speed, the 80% of the surface is unpinnable. And, and furthermore, the types of golfers that would play that golf course simply couldn't handle green speeds that were nine and a half because it'll, it'll be a ping pong. It's, it's like they're playing tennis back and forth across the golf course or across the green. Um, so there just are courses that, that through the design, through the types of players there, uh, shouldn't have, should not have green speeds above nine or above 10. And there are other courses that are, you know, if the, if the expectations are there and the, the architecture allows it, you can do 12 feet, but, uh, it, certainly there's an idea that faster is better. And I would say sometimes slower is better. You get to have pin locations that are more interesting, that are on more slope, um, that requires more strategy coming in. It still allows it to be playable for, for the, uh, the less skilled golfers. Uh, and it allows the, the better golfers maybe to, to think a little bit more, to experience more break. You know, those are harder putts. It's kind of interesting to read. Um, faster is not always better. And, and I agree. Like, I don't know how superintendents deal with, with Greens Committee's members that, that go out there at 7 at night and play and say the Greens are slow. Well, they had 16 hours to grow during the day. Uh, you know, what does that do to green speed and, and so, so many variables that uh, that make it very difficult to to operate in that environment. Yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> that's that's one where I mean, you mentioned green speed being measured to the inch. I prefer to measure it in centimeters, um, which takes it already down to an increment less than a half inch um, as the base uh, unit of measurement. And then it makes it easy to apply the Brady correction because we don't have to deal with that weird inches. Uh, yeah. unless you're using a tape that has inches on a decimal scale, which I know they have those kind of tapes, but if you're measuring, uh, actual inches, it's a bit tricky to apply that conversion. So I like to use centimeters and I work it back to feet and I always do that. So I'm measuring like, okay, it's 333 in that direction. It's 367 in the other direction. And people always come up to me and they say, what, what's the speed? And I'm like, I don't really care oh, what the yeah. speed is. I'm doing a research project. I'm going to go calculate this later. But then I realized, you know, I should make a little app on my phone so that I can just put it in and quickly spit out the number. Because so many people ask me, they want to know what the feet and inches are. That's it's always fascinating being on a golf course when golfers are there and, and, I've learned to, and I will never tell anybody a green speed when they come up to me, 
They'll be like, what are they rolling at? And I'll, and I'll say, uh, well, let me see a putt first. And if the putt is short, I'll say, well, not fast enough, I guess. And if the putt is long, uh, I'll say, well, they're, they're too fast, it looks like. And if it goes in, I'll say, oh, rolling just fine. <laughs> <laughs> and that's yeah. my way to diffuse the situation. <laughs> Yeah, I, it's interesting. I, I, I've found over the past decade or so, I've gotten more and more into measuring playability. And I've been focused much more on assessing the playing conditions of the surfaces, especially putting greens, and less so about, I, I've been less concerned about, um, potassium deficiencies and surface area removal and the amount of sand I was able to get down and so on. Because in the end, it doesn't really matter what our potassium is. It doesn't really matter how much surface area removal we had. It doesn't matter how much sand top dressing we were able to put down. What matters in the end is what type of playing experience the golfers had. And I think trying to optimize that, maximize the number of days in the year in which the golfers can have a good experience whether whether that is at a facility that's being run for profit or a facility that is trying to provide an exclusive member experience i think the same outcome should be the uh, it should be the same desired outcome to maximize the number of days in the year at which the play- playability was at an acceptable level for that facility and that and then everything else ties into that so yeah if you have potassium deficiency you're not going to achieve that um, if you did not put enough sand you're not going to achieve that but if you put too much sand you're not going to maximize the number of days either so the idea is to make sure that you're doing enough try not to do too much that's disruptive but you absolutely have to do anything that's essential and trying to i've been trying to look at the maintenance work in that framework which is why i think it it makes sense now to at least track things weekly i agree and that's the the really impactful stuff that chris tritabaugh has done with that data is like the days that he achieved what what they determine their benchmark was for, for the yeah. club. I'll bring that, that I'll bring that chart up real quick. So anybody that's still watching this, um, I can under the playability tab. Um, this, uh, Chris, I can, I can navigate to Chris's blog and look at, his data are you seeing this yep yep um let me see yeah i'll just bring up this chart real quick and it's so impactful because it's it's a superintendent right it's it's in the field and and as much as 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 our research stuff is is cool to kind of found find foundational principles and and build on other research like when you see it like this in the field it it I think it means more, especially as superintendents, when you're trying to apply these concepts, like, oh, there's a person doing this. And, oh, wow, this is, this makes me think about how many days do I give to my, my membership or my players that are uh, what they should be getting, essentially. 
Yeah, it, it's now Chris is measuring daily. He's he's measuring daily, not weekly. But he has a big crew, and he has the luxury of being able to do that. And you would get the same thing if you measure it a few times a week or at least once a week. But um, this is just with a bit more detail, and it's an incredible amount of detail because it shows these three lines on this chart are showing um, three disruptive events that happen and then how the bobble test goes up above eight after each of them, but it dropped below eight um, with heavy sand top dressing, heavy sand top dressing, and an airification event. And then you can count the number of days that are above a threshold. You can also count the number of days that it took to recover from that disruption. And when you look at it like that, you mentioned earlier saying um, maybe reflect on it or um, react to it a bit slowly. Um, you said something like that, Carl, where um, you can look at this in the future. You look back on it, look at what happened, and then you can say, how could we do that again next time and do it even better to um, to recover from that disruption more rapidly or to have fewer days um, with the disruption. Absolutely. And whether it's timing, whether it's the follow-up practices to to get the sand and the canopy better or whatever, maybe you've already cut it before to open it up. Like those are the sorts of things that then you can tool around and say, okay, next time I'm going to measure. And, oh, did it happen in, in four days instead of seven days until I got back to my standards? That's the really cool thing I think that can come out of just taking this real simple data that that gets that gets that course back to the the standards of of your clientele quicker and and gives them more days that makes the course uh, more more fun to play. Yeah, I it's something that's been transformative for me in the way that I now think about what type of advice I should be giving and the type of day-to-day uh, -day maintenance activities that I recommend because I used to be much more textbook oriented seminar like what I'd learned in seminars what I was teaching in seminars what what I was learning from textbooks like those behind me or what I I'd learned from green section record articles and stuff about here's what we should be doing so then I was going around the world telling people here's what you should be doing in terms of sand and coring and all of this and there were really good superintendents who were not doing that, who were just um, doing what I'm recommending now of just producing good playing surfaces all the time. And they would, they were telling me, but I wasn't listening. They were saying, well, we couldn't possibly disrupt our surfaces that much. It's not realistic. Like l do the math on what you're actually recommending. And, and I was just like, well, you, you need to do it anyway. Like just find a way like, and then, and then, year after year we're having that same conversation and i keep saying the surfaces are good and they're good and they're good and it's like well maybe all this stuff that i'm saying is necessary is not so necessary after all and then i started paying attention to playability more and then that gets me now at uh you know definitely in the middle of my career um i'm i'm not so young anymore so i i it's like man i wish i knew all this stuff 20 years ago I, but but I I know it now and uh, it's exciting. It's exciting to be able to 
to study this kind of stuff and to say, you know, let's go beyond the textbook. And uh, I think I've got a couple of seminars. I've, it's cool. I've been invited to speak at some really interesting conferences around the world this year. And um, I think in one of them, I said, let's call my um, call the topic um, beyond the textbook or something and just start talking about the kind of things that you need those textbook fundamentals to make sure that you can have 100% grass cover and make sure that you can keep 100% grass cover and that you're aware of the things that might be coming up down the road that might prevent you from having 100% grass cover. You definitely need that, but there's a whole layer to it that you either learn on the job or, you know, and, but I don't think what you, what gets learned on the job maybe doesn't get shared through the industry in a really systematic way, but I see the type of things that I can share that I learn from other people and then re-communicate. And maybe I think the idea is mine, but I'm sure I've learned it from other people. Well, it's like clipping volume is, is something that a lot of other people did. I never thought it was useful until I did. And then I promote it. Um, and then by now it's like, yeah, I kind of came up with clipping volume, but it's, it's, I didn't, it, I didn't, everybody's been paying attention to that forever. And it's just like, I think um, Dave Wilbur had a podcast with um, Kevin Ross and they, they said something like, yeah, I was, heck, I was doing that 30 years ago. And, you know, I mean, of course, every good greenkeeper has been doing that. It's just, this is a way where we can put a catchy hashtag on it. And, uh, you know, it's just like MLSN. It's the most simple thing possible. And Max Schlossberg has written some articles and just saying, well, that's just um, like, um, replacement. It's just like whatever it's called build and replace or, or whatever the, the standard fertilizer terminology is for that. It's just that, but then they put a name on it. It's nothing new. And yeah, that's right. But the guideline numbers that we're recommending that you, that you, um, stay above, that's a little bit different, but the whole thing is, is what good greenkeepers have been doing all the time. And it's just, it's fun to be in a position to be able to communicate that, to be excited about it, to have a chance to talk with people like you who are doing this on halfway around the world and then going out and playing on it and evaluating it. And then we can just try to do it better next week, next month and next year. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is, this is a blast, Mike. I love, uh, this is such a great kind of forum to just like talk about all this stuff and, and hopefully, you know, the people watching and on the recording or, or live here are, are getting some interesting things out of this, but I think you're exactly right. It's, it's especially all the stuff I'm talking about. It's, it's these other superintendents on New York state park golf courses who are doing the things. And then I just talk about it to other people because they got other stuff to do. They're not going to sit on a, uh, they, they can't get out twice a week and do the Cornell turf show fastest 30 minutes in turf to talk about what they're doing. So that's why Frank and I are, are there to, to yell at everybody, as, as Frank would say. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, Frank gets through that stuff pretty fast, and you do too. I I sometimes like to talk through things. Um, like with the Office Hour show, I'm so happy that you've had uh, uh, two hours to spend with me where we can just talk about these things that... I think we gave a disclaimer at the start or a heads up at the start that it may be a bit of a rambling conversation because there's so many different ways to measure these things and define what playability is and so on. And it's just, I guess the one thread that sticks through it for me is the overall importance of this 
certainly in my thinking now about how the epitome or or the the main target of what we're trying to do the main objective is and should be about optimizing the playability and that's something that I definitely neglected earlier in my career and uh, it's something that now is a focus for me and it's funny because like ag and we we pull a lot of our research from ag ag does this because everything comes back to how am i going to make money well yield okay everything comes back to yield and everything is dollars per pound or whatever and we don't and for years in golf it's like well we don't have yield so we can't do that but maybe there's a way we can do that and actually michael beckin who who just uh received his doctorate from uh uw madison just actually came up with a way to figure out how efficient eco efficiency models how efficient is a golf course at producing rounds uh and uh he looked at pesticide use okay i use x amount of pesticides how many rounds did i do is that good i use x amount of fertilizer how many rounds did i do is that good water okay i use this amount of water for my region and I did this in many rounds. Is that good? Um, coming back to that bottom line. So he uses rounds as the um, sort of outcome. And, and him and I talked about this at the beginning of his research. For him, it was just going to be so difficult to measure playability across a year that he had to use rounds as the proxy. But for superintendents, the proxy is your playability. And how to measure that is the hard part. I think we're t- we talked about it a little bit today. That maybe gives people some clarification. But that's the bottom line is is playability and everything has to come back to that or else uh it's it's it would be a it would be a backwards way to do it if we didn't have that as our bottom line but we go to so many seminars at conferences and it's all about this new fertilizer has a new slow release technology and um and then this new wedding agent has look at this compared with last year's wedding agent doesn't it look better and it's it's a lot of things related to growing grass and having healthy grass, which is f- important. Or look at this new, let's go look at this equipment demo day and look at this new technology to strip the surface off or, or, or slice and, and inject sand or whatever. And it's all really useful, cool tools that are all related to the growing grass aspect of it. The word that I really don't like, um, I don't like the word agronomy. Um, because from if you look at the dictionary definition of agronomy and then start trying to say how that's related to uh, creating a playing surface for golf or for any sport, I just, I just, I don't like taking pride in the word agronomy. And I've expressed that before. And, and it's just a word that kind of makes me think, "Mm, I don't think what we're doing should be glorified as agronomy because just because it's a fancy word, if you want to use a fancy word, use agristology. Like say this is the agristology department or something. Now we're talking about grass science instead of just agriculture. Because what about curator? What about the word curator? How do you feel about that? Uh, I have no that does not have a negative connotation for me. <laughs> so I'm I'm fine with curator. Okay. But I I I don't want to I don't want people to call me an agronomist, and um, I don't think that golf course agronomy is really what we're doing because if we focus so much on the healthy grass aspect of it like it's inherently not healthy to to treat grass the way we do in order to have a playing surface so rather than like get like trying to 
yeah, I, I just, hmm. anyway. Yeah, that's, that's, inter- I mean, I guess I feel the same way. I, I, the bulk of my work now is, is on environmental best practices. So, uh, you know, like we, Frank, obviously, and I focus on how do we protect water quality? How do we, how does a golf course have value beyond the, the recreational component? So that's kind of where I'm, I'm focusing nowadays, but you're exactly right. It's it's not really an agronomist. You're not trying to grow, like grow a crop and and produce the yield. You're you're trying to optimize how people recreate, and that's uh, yeah, that's a, that's a different thing entirely than than being an agronomist. Yeah. So I know there's a lot of signs that say agronomy department, and a lot of people are have that job title and. That's fine, but I I wish like thirty years from now it, that it wasn't uh, the word that was so commonly used in the industry because I think seminars about agronomy and learning about agronomy that's just the start. That's like the fundamental things that you have to know. You have to know the agronomy, but what we're really doing is uh, is a little bit beyond that. Now, if you're a sod farmer or something, I think mm-hmm. that. You could say, okay, we're doing agronomy, but uh, otherwise, I, I'd rather avoid the word. Well, we're this is approaching the longest uh, podcast podcast live stream ever. Um, I don't know that we have too much more to talk about at yeah, this point. I, I think that's a good stopping point, Mike. I think, uh, yeah, it's it's two hours, and I think we covered a lot of stuff, and and I think. Um, there's a lot of tidbits in there and I'm sure you'll tweet it out and I'll pull stuff and, and timestamp stuff for people and, and direct them. Cause there's so much stuff you can chop up in, in these sorts of videos. And that's what makes it kind of like, we call it evergreen content that um, people can go back and reference. Yeah, it is. There's, there's some, a core group of people around the world. It, it's not a huge audience for this type of content, but there are, uh, I'm, I'm glad that, for the niche things that we're interested in, there are people around the world who are also interested in this. So we can create content and then we can take highlights and share that with perhaps a broader audience. But some people will watch this or listen to it and have joined us for much of the live stream or maybe a few people joined us for all of the live stream to hear this conversation. And I I think it's awesome. And um, I, I think that we're going to, I, I would like to request in the future that we could uh, do this again, because I'm sure that as you do your research projects, I do my research projects, this playability issue is going to keep um, coming up. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Carl. Well, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks to everybody who joined in the live stream, Bernardo, Alan, um, Randy, Jason. Um, I think, those are the people that were chatting with us and uh, that's all very good comments thanks to everybody who listened and watched and uh, i'll catch you next time on the next office hours thanks everyone bye-bye see you micah